Would you open your Bibles this morning to Revelation uh, 17 and 18 uh, this morning? It's the second part of a, a message we began last week called Love God, Not the World. This is the second part of that. Last week, we learned uh, that Babylon represents worldliness. So we're going to hear that name Babylon again and again in these two chapters. David Wells once said that worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. That's a great definition of worldliness. Babylon's mission, worldliness, its mission is to entice people away from God by convincing them that they can find lasting happiness without God. So if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, we're so glad you're here. And I would just want to reach out to you from the very beginning to say that is the world you're living in. You're living in a world that is trying to convince you that you can find lasting happiness without God. Babylon is a place where man is God. And the gospel of that city, Babylon, is that you can have prosperity and pleasure and power and you have no need for God. Or to fool you into thinking, oh, but you know, if you go to God, God can give you all of that so that you can end, end up loving those things more than really you love God. This morning, we're going to learn how Babylon tempts us to love and trust in the things of the world rather than Christ. How the destruction of Babylon and its temptations is guaranteed. That's really good news. And how we are to overcome the temptations of Babylon day by day until Babylon is destroyed. So this morning we're going to read, since there's, there's a large swath of scripture, we're going to, we're going to break the reading into three different, the three different points of the message. We're going to read at each point. So at this point, we're going to read Revelation 17, verses 1 through 13. And then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels, and pearls holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and to go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. Well, this calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom who have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. 
And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And then, and the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. And all oh, they're, they're going to make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Well, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for slowing us down at this portion of Revelation and speaking so specifically, really, to the hearts of everyone, unbeliever and believer. But this is so uniquely being spoken to Christians. Lord, give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see, give us a heart to understand why you spent so much time and took so much care to give us these two chapters. Please, Lord, we want to be changed by your word. We want to glorify you and love you more and trust you more and obey you more and reach out with the gospel more. So please, would you do all that in the ministry of your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Um, in 2 Kings, uh, I was reminded of this in several ways this week. There's a story of the king of Aram, and he sent horses and chariots to capture or kill the prophet Elisha. Elisha was a pain in his saddle, man. He just... Every strategy that that king planned to try to defeat Israel, God told Elisha about it. Elisha told the, the, the leaders of Israel about it. So they were all, always ready for this king of Aram and all of his military task, tactics. Well, when, when Aram, the king of Aram, heard about this dude Elisha, he sent so many horses and chariots to a city called Dothan, uh, and they surrounded that city. And their intention was to go get, get Elisha. They're going to capture him or kill him. And so imagine that, 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 that there's this city. I mean, I, what would that be like if Midland suddenly was surrounded by tanks and, you know, I mean, thousands of troops? And Well, Elisha had a servant, and the servant was freaking out. That would have been me. Uh, the servant was freaking out. And he said to Elisha, what shall we do? He was so afraid. And you remember what Elisha said? He said, first he prayed. He said, Lord, would you open his eyes? He, and so the, his eyes were opened. And Elisha, actually the prayer was, Lord, can you open his eyes so he could see that those for us are more than those who are against us? The servant opened his eyes. And he sees this angelic host of this army of, of horses and chariots of fire. And he wasn't afraid anymore. <laughs> so much of Revelation is like that, guys. So much of the Bible is like that. We, we, we see what we see with our natural eyes. That's what we see. That's all we, that's all we can see. We're finite people. And so much of the Bible is, is, is like just God being such a good father, gathering us up under his arm, and he says, I know what you're seeing, but now let me show you what's really happening so I can take your fear away. That uniquely happened to me a couple of weeks ago. 
I was in Conroe uh, serving at our sister church there, Christ Church of Conroe. And one of my privileges in serving there was to be able to spend some time with their former senior pastor, Dan Scheel. Dan has been a father figure for me. Dan was here in Midland when I first moved here. Dan was such an example of expository teaching, teaching and preaching. He was such an example of what Reformed doctrine of salvation can do to the human heart in promoting humility and gratitude and, and mission for Jesus. There were so many ways that Dan was such a blessing to me. He was such a, he was a teacher. He was a counselor. He had to step down because Alzheimer's has, has attacked him. And before I went to visit him, I was told, be ready because this isn't going to be the Dan that you've known. He's, he's going to speak, but very little of it will make sense. And it's just getting worse. I don't know if you've ever had an opportunity like that. Somebody in your life has been a source of strength and inspiration. And you go and you see them. And he would speak. Maybe three words, and then the words would just kind of fade into just mumbling. And even if he said a sentence, it, it wasn't ever in the context of what we were talking about. And so I was just wanting to do all I could to honor him regardless I'd been meditating on the scripture that says that even though outwardly we, our body wastes away, inwardly for a believer, the, the heart is renewed day by day. I'd been meditating on that before I went. And um, so we were just talking. And so Dan had given me, uh, one of his favorite preachers was a man named Eugene Peterson. He's actually a teacher at, at seminary uh, for him, a mentor and became a good friend. And uh, in the book, Con Contemplative Pastor, uh, Peterson taught this, um, this pattern of prayer that has affected my life since. And it was ca he called prayer, at it, you know, that, that significantly prayer, he says, is responsive speech. So what, what, a, what a wonderful way to pray is, is let God speak first. God's word should speak first to us. And then according to what he's spoken to us, we learn how to speak to him in prayer. Just the way our children grow up. They, they, you know, our kids don't grow up speaking English in the United States just because we're in the territory of the United States. They grow up speaking English because that's how they heard it. And so, so it's, it's just this beautiful principle of prayer about hearing God speak to us and then responding back to him in prayer and worship. And so I was asking Dan, I said, Dan, do you remember that? I, I, that, that was one of the biggest things you've ever done for me, is to really teach me how to pray in a biblical way, in a way that, that, that gave better assurance that I was praying according to the will of God. And, and thank you, Dan. I was just trying to say, thank you, thank you, thank you. And Dan had not been saying a clear sentence the whole time. I'd been there probably an hour and a half by that point. And his wife, precious wife, was across the table. And then he says... God has given us the gift of prayer and worship so that we might more frequently experience the touch of God. <laughs> I mean, 
And it happened three more times. I won't go into all of them. If you want, to, I'll, I'll tell you later. If you want, I'll be glad to tell you later. Can't go into all of them. But it so affected me because with my eyes, I'm seeing this strong man. Dan's six something. It's a big guy. This strong man whose outward man is withering. But I got a glimpse of what God is doing. I got a glimpse. It was like the Lord saying, Billy, I know what your eyes see, but you can't walk with this. You can't walk by sight. You have to walk by faith in my word. You have to walk by faith in my word. And, 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 so, and, and you see what I was doing? It was almost like, <laughs> this is, uh, it was almost like God peeking out and saying, see, I've got this. He's in good care. He's rejoicing and celebrating. He's at peace. There's hope in his life. He and I are talking. <laughs> I look over at his wife, and his wife is weeping, as you can imagine. Well, that's what we're going to see in Revelation 17 and 18. The Lord saying, I know what your eyes are seeing, but let me show you what's really happening. And, and that can come to us in a very comforting way, like I just described. And there is some real comfort here in these passages. But I also want to ask you, would you prepare your hearts? Are you willing to let Scripture convict you today? Because this, this passage was given to convict us so that we could grow in faith. Not to condemn or beat us up, but so that we could, we could be aware of where we're trusting in the world more than we're trusting in the Lord. And don't we want to change that if it's there? Don't we want to change that? And so that's what's going to happen today in the, in the text. Uh, the main point this morning, going back to Babylon, is it's in your notes. Babylon seeks to numb us to our need for Christ and blind us into believing that money, pleasure, power, I've been using prosperity, pleasure, and power, can meet our needs and satisfy our desires. So love the Lord and not the world. I just even ask you, just application right at the very beginning, what have you worried about this week? How many of us what we are worried about, if I were to come up to you and I, I just laid $50,000 in your hands, wouldn't, how many of us would go, oh, that's an answer <laughs> to, to what I was worried about. But it might meet a temporary need, but is it what you most need? You see what I'm saying? Um, so, so let's dig into this passage today. First point is, the church sees Babylon exposed for who she really is. The church sees the world exposed for who she really is. So verses 1 and 2, we see an angel is going to show the judgment of the great prostitute Babylon. And you might be asking, why, the, why all the sexual Im imagery here? I think I'm, I probably said the word prostitute more in five minutes than I've said in five weeks here. It just, why, why is it so graphic? Well, in the Old Testament idolatry or the worship of false god was, was viewed as spiritual adultery. So do you consider your sin that? Do you consider sin as spiritual adultery? It's unfaithfulness. It's you've pledged yourself to follow and love Jesus more than anything else you love. But when we turn and we trust in other things and people and money and, and just leisure and entertainment and there's the gamut of things... Oh, how often I'm unfaithful. I don't know about you. 
So it makes a lot of sense that this would be called spiritual adultery, and it would involve this prostitute figure seeking to lure us away. So, so this is not prostitution as so much as in our country where there's been sex trafficking and there's been all these things and, and precious girls and women being forced to do this. That's what this is about. This is about somebody who, this is why she exists. She exists to lure you away. That's her motive. That's what she was made for. That's what she lives for. So that's why the sexual imagery did you notice that she not only seduces the leaders of the world? Don't, that happen, that, guys, that is happening every day. The leaders of the world, the God-hating, Christ-rejecting leaders of the world, oh, aren't they in love with power? Oil. Oh, oil. Did you see the other day that if the Ukraine-Russia thing keeps going, there was one economist that said oil could go to 328 a barrel if, if, if Russia starts playing games because of our, our, our you know, the, the diplomatic ways we're trying to bring some consequences against Russia. 328 a barrel? Wow. What would that do to gas prices? She seduces the leaders of the world with this prosperity and pleasure and power. But it's not just the leaders. It says all the people, all the dwellers of the earth, whenever you see that in Revelation, think us, think us, that's you and me, are drunk with the wine of her sexual immorality, the lust for power, material stuff, sex, pleasure. All of these things have intoxicated the world. I mean, I just want to just ask you, praise God if you've never been a victim of too much wine. Sadly, uh, before I knew Jesus, I was too often a victim of too much wine and alcohol. Well, too much wine numbs a person, doesn't it? So I want you to be thinking about the numbing effect of wine, not, not, not now as, as a liquid, as a, as a drug, but just the numbing effect of wine and how, how the offer of prosperity and pleasure and power could be intoxicating. I want you to think about that. How, uh, when, what, what happens to us? Our defenses drop when we're numb by wine. Our ability to be deceived increases. And we tend to make horrible decisions about life and relationship and most particularly about God. I remember one friend, boy, he, made, <laughs> he got really loaded one night. He had a mustache. Oh, God. And we were such horrible friends, we shaved half of his mustache off. He was passed out. It's a bad decision to get drunk. It was a worse decision to get drunk with friends like us. I mean, that was, oh, we, we just make, I mean, how many of us would say, oh, I've made so many bad decisions when I was under the influence? Babylon seeks to numb us to our need for Christ. That's the worst part. And blind us into believing that money and pleasure and power can meet our needs and satisfy our desire. Oh, precious ones, love the Lord and not the world. And so from the context of chapter 17 and 18, it seems that this is referring actually less to sexual sin as, as much as it does a pursuit of pleasure and happiness and security, particularly in money particularly in money. Uh, Greg Beal, just a commentary that has blessed me during this series. He said this, economic security would be removed from Babylon subjects if they did not cooperate with their idolatry. Such security is too great a temptation to resist. 
man, haven't you been tempted like that? That if I would just compromise here, it could result in security financially or, or maybe vocationally. Therefore, the verb drank refers to the willingness of society in the Roman Empire. That's what, when it, again, the original audience, that's what John is originally writing to, to commit itself to idolatry in order to maintain economic security. The nation's cooperation with Babylon ensures their material security. The intoxicating effect of Babylon's wine removes all desire to resist Babylon's destructive influence. It blinds them to Babylon's own ultimate insecurity and to God as the source of real security. And it numbs them against fear of a coming judgment. That is so powerful. So in the city of man, money is the gospel. What's the good news in the city of man? What's the good news in the city where you're the center of your universe? Oh, good news is money. Good news is money. Good news is materialism. Good news is having power over others. Good need. Good news is sexual sin in that kind of a city. Pleasure is good news in that kind of a city. But you'll have to turn away from the Lord and turn to Babylon to get it. The verses 3 through 6, we see Babylon is in this alliance with the beast. It's an evil, demonic partnership. So remember, the beast is often, it represents the persecution or or oppression of Christians by God-hating, Christ-denying governments. But deception and seduction often work better than persecution. That's been the story of the United States. Our brothers and sisters around the world have experienced the the other end of, of, uh, of, of Satan's tactics in being persecuted. We have been a country who for years have been seduced and deceived into turning away from Jesus for prosperity, pleasure, and power. And that's what's happening here. So that's why in verse 4 you see the prostitute named Babylon is attractive. She, she appears attractive. Worldliness is also deceptive by the way she presents herself. The description here has elements of the way the bride of Christ is described. Later on, we're going to see that in chapters 19 and forward. We're going to, aren't, you, aren't you looking forward to those chapters? When Jesus comes again, new heaven and new earth, and we're invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. But you're going to see, wow, this, this harlot is dressed similarly to the bride of Christ. This prostitute is similarly dressed to the bride of Christ. I think one of the meanings here is that she's luring people away from Christ by appearing as though she's the bride of Christ. That you can still believe in Jesus, that you can still be spiritual while you give yourself to loving the things of the world more than the creator of the world. Oh, but and, and you could totally still be spiritual. I think that's what's happening here. In other words, part of the deception is to redefine Christianity as seeking God to get the world. And how many times we just sometimes slip into doing that. We're not going to God because God is enough. We're going to God because I want something more than God. That's that's just this deception. 
And verse 4 speaks about uh, her holding a golden cup that looks like it'd be filled with the finest of wines, but instead it's filled with abominations. And another way you could say that is, is she, she loves to defile holiness and exalt idolatry. On her head is, is written a name. Remember, names on foreheads speak not of, of beware of a vaccine. It doesn't speak of that. It's speaking of an identity. It's what your true identity is. You're either, uh, you're either a follower of Christ in which you have the mark of the lamb on your forehead, or you're dead in sin and transgression, and you're following sin and the world and the devil. Then you've got the mark of the beast. Well, her, this is her true identity, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. She could be called the anti-high priest of the Old Testament. If you remember the, the high priest, and remember all of us, if you're born again, we're, we're called priests and kings. The high priest of the Old Testament on his headwear, on, over his forehead, it said, holy to the Lord. That was supposed to have a meaning. It was supposed to be that he couldn't look in any direction without saying, if I go in this direction, it better be holy to the Lord. The way I treat this person, it better be holy to the Lord. You see how this, this, this prostitute is just almost mocking the high priest. She says, no, no, come to me because I'll make it all about you. It won't be, you don't need to be holy to the Lord. This is about you and your satisfaction, and your pleasure. So if the beast is ungodly, Christ-rejecting government, then the prostitute is everything that surrounds the state in regard to our fallen culture, and people's tendency to want to worship creation more than the creator. That would include making good things into ultimate things, into idols. It's like making entertainment, education, the economy, commerce, music, sports, leisure, advertising, all to be substitutes or replacements for God or stepping stones to get you to turn away from God. Drunk with the blood of the saints. Did you see that in verse 6? Babylon is hostile to God because Babylon is driven by self-interest. Think of your most recent argument as husband and wife. I guarantee you, somewhere in there was self-interest. And, and, and you, haven't you said things to your spouse that you go, what is wrong with me? And your spouse is wondering what's wrong with you too. And, and you can't believe that the one I love the most of, of humanity, how could I speak to her that way? It's what self-interest does. And the, the, this prostitute. That's what, that's what flows in her veins. She was drunk with the blood of the saints. She's willing to sacrifice others to promote its own benefits and prosperity. Don't we see that in the horror of abortion? You don't think that the prostitute is involved with that? Just the killing of the unborn for convenience? Self-interest is at the center of that, isn't it? it it just gets me. I just cry when I hear people. I have to say, I'm, I'm, I'm going to talk about our president. Him coming out with this executive order is, is trying to legislate immorality. It's sin. And it's driven by self-interest. You don't see, you guys, please, this book is all about today. It spoke to our brothers and sisters in the first century church, but we're foolish to think it's not about us. We are in this. 
And so you see this self-centered interest that's willing to cause others to pay. Wow, what a difference in Jesus, huh? Jesus says, you know, if you'll come to me, I'll pay the price so you don't have to. What a Savior. What a Savior. Love the Lord, not the world. She was impressive. This, this really got to me. She, he says, I marveled greatly. Um, she was that deceptive. This is the Apostle John. So remember who this is. This is the disciple who laid his head on Jesus' chest. This is the one that Jesus said, he, he, this John loves so much. Like It was said of John. He loves so much like Jesus. Oh my goodness. And this one is marveling greatly? This was, the, this was the apostle John who had had the throne room visions of seeing God on his sovereign throne ruling and reigning totally undefeated and then seeing the lamb who was slain standing in victory over Satan and sin and death and judgment. John saw that. Precious ones, if John can be deceived, we are st- Foolish. I almost said something some parents would not have wanted me to say. It wasn't really, it wasn't a cuss word or anything, but it was just not a pleasant word. <laughs> um, silly. That wasn't the word, but um, how about this? I, better words. We're arrogant. If the Apostle John could go, whoa. See, isn't that what the Lord's trying to say? John, wait, hang on, here's conviction. Let me show you what's really going on. I know this is what your eyes see. Your eyes see a four-bedroom house. Your eyes see one-acre property. Your eyes see 16 bathrooms in a four-bedroom house. Your, your, eyes, your eyes see. And you know what? And you, Listen, if you just cheat a little bit here and cheat a little bit here and cheat a little bit here, you can afford that, baby. Yeah, I know. She looks so good. She, and John, it's what it's saying. It's saying that it, at, at this first glance, She's deceptive. She is so attractive. What she's offering seems so satisfying. It seems like this, honey, this would meet our needs. If we'll just turn this direction, she can meet the needs that we have. I know we're in debt, but we can get out. Listen, we don't have to work hard. Are you kidding? She's just going to do it. Yeah, of course the government is supposed to supply everything for us. Yeah. I mean, so you see, I'm trying to throw those little things in so you'll, you'll just see why this book is so current. The ways of the world always seem more impressive than that of a crucified Savior. It will always see. That's why we need each other's help. If you're not in, 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 please, please, please hear this. When our small groups start up again in September, if you're not in a group of people who's constantly saying, hey, God wants me to, to lift up your eyes. God wants to show you what's really happening. God wants to turn to the word. He wants you to see that if you ask for bread, he's not going to give you a stone. He, God wants you to see. God wants you to see. Because without help, God didn't design us to walk the Christian life without fellowship. We need reminders constantly that she ain't all that. Dennis Johnson in his commentary says, First century Christians might have wondered, how can Rome be so bad when she looks so good? Or how could Rome ever fall when she looks so strong? 21st century Christians living in cultures confident in their affluence and technology may have the same 
questions. So he's rebuked. John is rebuked. And I tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast. Let me show you the woman who she really is and the beast who, for who he really is. And when it, when it happens, I encourage you, whenever you have the Lord say, okay, I know what your eyes are seeing. I know you're afraid. I know you're worried. Let me show you what's really going on. That's another way of the Lord saying, I'm totally in control. That's why he could say that to you. Here's what's really going on. Why? Because I'm in control of it all. And I shed my son's blood for you. You're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. So verses 8, it starts to unpack the beast. And there's this whole thing about the beast was and is and is not. And all these, these kind of things. And it's just a reminder to us of the generational impact of this teaching where it seems like an evil leader that's just been just power hungry and at the expense of countless victims, whether it's economic victims or military victims or whatever it is. And oh, finally, he's taken out. And oh, wow. But it's so funny. Instead of saying, okay, Lord, thank you. Thank you for that. But our trust isn't in politicians. Our trust is in you. But it's so easy to go, Oh, I hope the next leader, I hope the next leader, I hope the next leader. And what it's saying is, you're, you're living in Babylon. You're living in a fallen world, a fallen culture. And there's going to constantly be being, being raised up by the Antichrist, these false prophets and these prostitutes and, and these government regimes who are, who are I, can th- I think I can use this theologically, hell-bent to destroy the church. This is a weird marriage of government and fallen culture. Don't you think it's weird during election time when Hollywood stars come out and say, hi. Isn't that funny? You guys were always a teenager. I had an afro, I had a giant afro. But I thought the guys that had straight hair were the cooler. And I really liked how they did their bangs, you know, like, I think that's why I have a compressed vertebrae in my, in my neck right now because I was with an afro going, <laughs> trying to get my bangs to move. Hey, no wonder no one wanted to date me. No, if Jan was here, she would go, I would not have liked you in high school. Um, so, so here's what's happened. It's this weird, weird thing between fallen culture and politicians and all of it is to try to convince us. It's to try to numb our hearts to our true need. Our true need is Jesus, knowing him better, following him more devotedly, becoming more like him, reaching others with the gospel. That's our true need. But it's this weird, evil conglomeration that's going on. And so this calls for wisdom. He talks about being seated on seven hills. And, and at that point, he's very likely talking about Rome because that was going on right at that time. But it's not just Rome. It's bigger than Rome, precious ones. Paris is Babylon. Beijing is Babylon. Moscow is Babylon. Kathmandu is Babylon. New York City is Babylon. Las Vegas is Babylon. Dubai is Babylon. Los Angeles, Washington, D.C. is Babylon. And I've heard that Babylon is even sneaking around the streets of Midland. 
Babylon's reign comes to an end. And, and you'll see that. It, it's, it's all the things about seven kings and five were and one is and one's to come and all that. Wow. Lots of, there's been so many math, mathematicians and historians and things to try to figure that out. Here's all I would say about it. You can, it it's, it's interesting to study. Here's what I would say about it. If, if there's going to be eight counting the beast and five have already passed, we're getting closer and closer to the second coming of Jesus. And we need to be more vigilant than we've ever been in our lives. And so all of these leaders pool their energy and pool their, their forces and riches. And they come against the lamb. And they come, they come against the lamb's people. And isn't it so great that the scripture says the lamb conquers them. And he brings us in the victory. I just love that. And then just, just really briefly, so Babylon, the church sees Babylon destroyed for what she's done. And that's chapter 17, verses uh, 15 through um, 18, verse 3. And you see, just Babylon the great has fallen. At, at the end of the chapter, you see her like a millstone's hung around her neck. And she's thrown into the sea, never to be heard from again. And if you're somebody like me, who is just so sick of giving into temptation, I thank you, God, for how you've helped me to grow, but I still too, too easily give into temptation. Isn't it going to be great when the new heavens and new earth are established and there won't be anything in that new heavens and earth to tempt us? And we'll, yeah, amen. <laughs> Guys. We'll be, we'll be new as well. New hearts, bodies, everything about us is bent toward worshiping and loving and serving Jesus. Oh, I look forward to that day. So it's good news, isn't it? So here we go. Babylon the great has fallen. It is great news. It is great news. So, here, so here's how we end though. But it didn't happen yet. We're not there yet. We're not there yet. So now we've got to fight. We've got to overcome. Isn't that what the Revelation's been teaching us? Overcomers, overcomers, overcomers. And that's this last section. The church is called to overcome the temptations of Babylon. And you see it in verse 4. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins and share in her plagues. So how do we come out of Babylon? I actually had an uncle... Uh, who came from Syria, who, who confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior. And I, I don't know, I didn't get to hardly spend any time with him, but he moved into the mountains of New Mexico into an almost unreachable place. And we went to visit him one day. And he moved there thinking that he could somehow escape the world. Is that how we, is that how we get out of Babylon? You know? No, you know that. We don't. Scripture says... Uh, this is Jesus praying. He says, Lord, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I've guarded them. Not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be filled, fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you. And these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. I don't know when the last time you prayed that was. <laughs> Lord, I just want to be taken out, you know. 
No. I ask that you keep them from the evil one. That's what the prayer is. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I send them into the world. So I send them into Babylon. Why? Because there's people God wants to save in Babylon. We can't go, go, go running with our tails between our legs because we're afraid of Babylon. And we also can't hang out in Babylon and just give all of our time and attention and heart and finances to Babylon and think we're going to come out unscarred. And not to mention, not very much of a witness. We come out of Babylon by not participating in our sins. And there's many sins to choose from. But it, the text, I, I see two sins in the text that we're to overcome. First, do not compromise your walk with Christ and look to Babylon, i.e. the world, just to get rich. Do not believe that money, pleasure, or power will meet every need and satisfy every desire. You see that in multiple verses. In verse 3, the nations of the earth have drunk the wine of her sexual immorality. The kings have committed immorality. The earth dwellers have drunk the wine. They've all compromised. That's what it's saying. To what? To get rich from the power. It was, this is the text. The power of her luxurious living. The power of luxurious living. They did whatever they had to do to get rich, even if it required unfaithfulness to God. We are, we are numbed to this sin because if everyone around us is doing a little compromising, isn't it normal? Isn't common equal normal? Not for a believer. I've told you this story before, but Jan and I were talking to my dad. How we got on this topic, I'll never know. But we were talking about how that we were virgins when we got married. And my dad would just, he just, he started getting upset with us. You're lying. You're Christians. And you should not be lying. And finally, my dad said, it's just not normal. And my dad was from a way previous generation, right? He was 45 when I was born. And, and then it just hit me. I said, Dad, um, it's not common, but it is normal if you use Scripture as your guide. You hear what I'm saying? We just, you guys, it's, it's, we got to be careful because it's pretty osmosis, osmotic. Is that a word? <laughs> the, the issue of, of where we breathe in this fallen culture air. I, I mean, the flickers of this screen can shout at us. There's pleasure to be found apart from Jesus. Let me, let me get you looking at 30 minutes of whatever when you could have been talking and caring for somebody. You could have been in the Word. You could have been in prayer. It's numbing us because everyone around us is doing it. It seems normal. It seems normal to compromise on taxes. Taxes are too high. It seems normal to ignore your family to get rich. It seems normal to ignore your need for rest and worship on the Lord's day because you need to, to either rest to go get more money or you're out getting more money. Now, that doesn't include, thank God for the mercy ministries, doctors and nurses, and thank God for people that work in restaurants. And they stay. They're just, so it's, that's, we're just saying people whose heart is bent on finding their security in the things of the world and not in the Lord. 
gambling, lottery, supervisor, getting rich at the expense of his employees. Ignore seeking to advance the gospel with tithing, giving to the church, or supporting missions, or caring for the needs of the widow and orphan. It's being willing to take on so much debt that it paralyzes you from being able to have more freedoms and to serve the world. But wait, isn't that what everyone does? Yeah. People who aren't knowing what it means to be satisfied in Jesus. People who aren't knowing what it means to trust in the Lord day by day for the manna he'll give us day by day. He loves us. He's not going to turn away from us. We often make decisions about the future based solely on salary and benefits. And not, to my brothers, if you get a job offer that requires you moving, I'm going to ask you, please, may the first thought be, how will this affect the soul of my wife? Where we're moving, have you scoped out the land as much as you can scope out the land? Is, is, are there some gospel-centered churches that you already know you want to visit? Does, does there seem to be a, a, a place where her soul is going to be fed God's word? How about your kids? How about your kids? Are you concerned? Let's move salary and benefits over here. Not irrelevant, but let's don't make it the first thing. What about the eternal souls of your kids? You see, that's the, we live differently as Christians, don't we? Our priorities are different. It could be that in the name of getting scholarships. Man, my, you know, I had some sons that did some athletics. And in the name of getting college scholarships, we plug them into athletics that actually take them out of the regular gathering of a gospel-centered church at least half the Sundays a year. Our goal in raising our kids is it is our goal getting them to the best colleges regardless of the student loans that they're going to carry afterwards or how much money. We're almost perpetuating it. Can you see how we do it to the next generation? We're almost perpetuating. Hey, you can find what you need in Babylon. No, you can't. No, you can't. And it's assumptions that everyone should have the best of the best. If you'll, I'm sorry, I didn't, didn't read chapter 18. But if you look in there, verses 12 and 13, it talks about the best clothes. It talks about the best jewelry. It talks about the best house and, and the best de decorations in the house. It talks about the best health and diet. It talks about the best protection and transportation. It talks about labor. It talks about having other people work for you so you can get your idols. Oh, listen. If all you are is just a material being, that you're no better than the horse grazing in a field, I guess then you could say money's all you need. You're not a material being. You are made in the image of God. You have a soul that God wants to save and shape and inspire and love and forgive and empower. Oh, you guys, we are so much more than material beings. And we lower our view of ourselves as believers into just being materialists because we're just material. And, and that, you know, I just, oh, this is terrible. I just heard Madonna. That is horrible. That's the first time I've had the thought of Madonna in a sermon. But you know what's the song? Material Girl? Wasn't that her song? 
Yeah, if you're just a material person, oh, you're so much more to the Lord. And the second is this. It's not only wanting prosperity and pleasure and power. It's, it's really trusting in it for security. So there's one that just, I just love money. I just love pleasure. I love power. I love all that. But then really, I think for a lot of us, it's maybe I won't have to worry if I get that much income. Maybe if I had a better retirement, I wouldn't have to worry. That, would knock, that temptation knocks on my door. And I just think, oh my goodness. Well, in verse 7 in chapter 18, it speaks of this person who is totally looking to the world for security. And, and this, there's a declaration that I'm royalty. I, I'm not a widow. I'm not mourning. I, I won't even ever see mourning because I have everything I need in the world. And then one of the ways you can tell whether you're trusting in material things more than trusting in the Lord is how we respond when it's taken away. So I'm going to ask you, please, this afternoon, would you read chapter 18 so you can see these things? You're going to see in there that there are laments of kings and merchants of the earth, merchants of the sea, and they all have one thing in common. When God is judging Babylon and Babylon is being destroyed, all of these really rich people, pleasure-driven, powerful people, they're weeping and wailing. Judgment is falling all around them. I don't know how that's looking. I don't know if it's coming in the form of some fire and brimstone or what. But it's obvious judgment is coming and they're oblivious to it. They're just sad that their money's gone. Can I ask us not, let's be careful how we lament right now in this season, this economic season of our world. Let's be careful not to allow our laments of paying $450 more each month for living expenses, high gas prices, high housing prices, car prices, etc., to sound like these laments. Listen, I'm all for it. We need better government, but without trusting in it. Don't we want better managers? Yes, but don't trust in them. Let's not think that what we most need is more money or politicians who can get it for us. Let's trust in the Lord who supplies all of our needs according to his riches and glory. The Father who I already said, when we ask for bread, he won't give us a rock. Trusting the deepest needs of our soul will always be met by Christ. And I wanted you to see, Tim Challies had just released a book. I don't know if you, you know, Tim Challies' son died when he was 20 years old. Just suddenly, shock to the family. He loved the Lord, student in seminary. And I thought, this really, this really hits the target about what it means in a world that's, that's treasure crazy, but the treasure isn't Jesus. It's self-centered crazy. I'm the middle of my story. I'm a material being. I just need all of these things to be happy and secure. Listen to what what Tim Challey said uh, in regard to what it, what it was like to lose a son and still follow the Lord. He says, unbelievers and Christians alike need the assurance that our faith does not depend upon God delivering only what we ourselves would choose and that our love for God 
does not depend upon circumstances that never contradict our desires. That's a mouthful, isn't it? Unbelievers and Christians alike need to be shown that God's people will be as true to him with little as with much, with broken hearts as with whole, with empty hands as with full. All need to be shown that those who blessed God when he gives will praise him still when he takes away. That those who weep tears of sorrow will still raise hands of worship. That those who trust him in the green pastures will trust him still when he leads through dark valleys. Would you stand? Josh, if there's a song on your heart, go ahead and come. And, and we totally understand if uh, you need to, to leave. Um, I, I want to just invite you to draw near to the Lord right now. Listen, it was good if you were convicted this morning. That's a good thing. That's not God beating you up. It's, it's, isn't it good to be shown if you're going down a bad road? That's a good thing. Isn't it good to be shown that you're trusting in something that is sure to disappoint you and probably for a while drag you down to a place you didn't want to go? It's a good thing to be convicted by the Lord. This would be a good morning to confess, Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that you not only give me eyes to see what you see, that you help me to, set, to know what's really going on when my heart is breaking and you show me how in control you are and you're working all things together for the good. But Lord, also thank you for helping me see what's really going on in this world and in my heart. And so I, it would be a great morning to, to be confessional. Lord Jesus, I, I just, I don't know what your, yours would be. I would, I would, I would pray, Lord, it, it just, it just seems so normal to want to have a retirement fund that I really just wouldn't have to worry about, which for me means I really probably wouldn't be trusting you for. Dear God, please forgive me for trusting in the things of this world for my security when all of my hope and security is found in Jesus. And Lord, thank you. I, I, so I confess that as sin and I... I want, to, I want to ask your forgiveness. And I'm so glad that Jesus paid for this sin too, <laughs> that this was included. <laughs> when he died on the cross, this sin was covered too. And God, I ask that you'd fill me with fresh vision and strength to overcome this temptation in the future. I think God would, would do a lot in your hearts if you could turn in confession and asking forgiveness and receiving the pleasure of God, the, the, the forgiveness of God, the approval of God, the hope of the future that God will give. I hope you'll do that this morning. Josh, would you go ahead and close us?